Good morning, church. Psalm 145 says this. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we stop to pray now as we continue our worship and we thank you that one generation will declare or commend your works to the next. And we pray that today that we would do just that, that we would declare your works. Thank you for this incredible statement of faith we've just heard. Thank you for this uh, young woman named Betsy who pursued Marissa and loved her and cared for her and invited her to the things of Christ and Ask her to go on a winter retreat. Thank you for the young man who befriended me at the Citadel and introduced me to the things of Christ. Thank you that you're in the business even now of doing that in our lives as we commend the glorious mercy of the cross of Jesus to our coworkers and neighbors and families and friends. So, Lord, we, we rejoice in your steadfast love and your tender mercies, and we ask that you would... Give us the grace by the power that you bring Holy Spirit to speak the reality of Christ to those around us. We pray your blessings, Lord, especially this day. We pray for your blessings on uh, the people of New Zealand, especially the Muslim community there who is grieving this horrendous act of violence. That, that, Lord, your people would love these men and women and boys and girls in a tangible way. We think of another place in our world where people are just struggling to survive, the country of Venezuela, that you would bring your um, mercy to them, that there would be food and clothing and clean water for these dear people, and, and Lord, that we would not take for granted the, the blessings we have of living in a place of order and law. And so we pray that our country would be a place where we understand that uh, there, there are right standards, and we would care for people uh, in all places in our society and treat men and women with dignity because all people are made in the image of God, and therefore they're worthy of respect and Christian love. So do that in our lives and in our world, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we're going through a part of the Gospel of Matthew as we examine how Christ responded to the situation of evil around him and how, how he did that in his active obedience and how that can be a statement to us about how we respond to people. And we come to a passage this morning that is in Matthew chapter 9, but I'm going to read the extended story uh, that is recorded in the book of Mark chapter 5, verses uh, 21 to 43. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43, and this passage is in your worship guide if you want to follow along. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come 
and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kuma, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something And this is a very well-known story. If you've been in the Christian community or very long, you've heard this story and you're familiar with it. But I I want to challenge you this morning to not let the impact of this narrative pass you by. It is a powerful statement. It's a glorious statement about the Christ who loves people and enters into our pain and anguish and cares for those who are inside and outside. The story centers around two people, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and a woman who's been sick with a blood disease, blood flow for 12 years. First of all, Mr. Inside is Jairus. It says he was a ruler of the synagogue, and a ruler of the synagogue means that he was the ultimate insider. He was in charge of watching over the synagogue, watching over the scrolls. He was esteemed in the community. He was probably a man of wealth. He was applauded and everyone liked him. He had an app on his phone that had to respond to all the RSVPs that were necessary for him because he got invited to every party in the Jewish community. He was on the inside. He was respected and a man of means. And, And in this situation, there was an acute illness. His daughter was dying 
in, it's not, it says it does not say this in the text, but since he's a ruler of the synagogue and he realized that following or going after Jesus, who was called a blasphemer by the ruling elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, that to go to Jesus means that he may lose his position. To go to Jesus means that he may be asked to leave the synagogue. To go to Jesus means that he may be a man of expulsion instead of ultimate acceptance. He was going to be pushed from the inside to maybe the outside, or at least the periphery. And yet he's so desperate that he falls on his knees before Jesus. And Mark says he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Basically, I've tried everything. I've gone everywhere. If you will just come and place your hands upon her, then she will be healed. He's desperate. There's not a parent here that doesn't sense the desperation in this man's life. There's not a parent here who wouldn't go to every extreme known to man to make his child whole. Not a parent here. This week, the scandal about college acceptance has been in the front of every news account in America about these parents that have paid up to half a million dollars to get their children into elite schools that they could never get into and doctoring resumes and photoshopping people playing sports they di didn't ever play and so that they could get in these elite institutions like Harvard and Stanford and the Citadel. We understand that. If you're a parent, now it is a ridiculous story, it's a sad story, it's a tragic story. And yet, and yet, and yet, as a parent, I have thought that there's, that there's nothing that I wouldn't do to get my kids to get a leg up in living. And yet you take that and you translate that to a child being sick to the point of death. And how desperation would come into your life because parental love is binding. Let me show you this, this woman. This woman's named Hetty Green. Interesting person. She died in 1916, and when she died, her net worth in today's dollars was between 3.5 and 4.3 billion dollars. Billion. She was raised in a prospering family in the New England states. Her family was involved in whaling, W-H-A-L, whaling. And so when she became of age, she was already a millionaires. She married a very wealthy man, but still made him sign a prenuptial agreement. She was an eccentric, very strange woman. In spite of her millions and millions and millions of dollars, she ate oatmeal almost exclusively because it was cheap. She never turned on the heat or the electricity in her house. She wore the black clothing all the time until it rotted off of her body. She was eccentric. But her eccentricity became monstrosity when you understand this. She had two children, a boy and a girl. When her son was young, he had a very severe accident where he broke his leg. And she would not take him to the hospital. She took him to a free clinic so she wouldn't have to pay. And when the free clinic said he needs specialized help, she said, just do the best you can. And they did. And infection set in the leg, gangrene that led to the place that the leg had to be amputated. And so Hetty Green was strange, but this showed her to be a monster. A parent who abuses her children and doesn't take care of them is a monster. This man is the polar opposite. He's willing to risk exclusion. He's willing to risk being cast out of his culture 
because he loved his daughter. And he kneels before Christ. So, that's Mr. Inside. Now let's meet Miss Outside. A woman who was a pariah, a social outcast, a, someone who was uh, deemed to be unclean, unhealthy, unwhole. For 12 years, she's had a bleeding disease, which means that she's not only unclean, but can you imagine being sick? I've, I've been sick this week with, with the virus, and with all the attendant things that it makes me very weak, but can you imagine being sick for 12 years, 12 years of a slow, steady blood flow without living in a culture where you can get IV treatment, and so your, 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 your expense is gone. Every penny she had is, is gone, and she is destitute, and she is sick. And for 12 years, she's been in this condition, and in Jewish law, if you're bleeding, you're an untouchable if you have a blood flow, you're untouchable. You have to live outside the camp, and nobody can touch you. Nobody can have you into their home. So for 12 years, she hasn't been to a family reunion. For 12 years, no one's touched her other than the outcast community. For 12 years, she's been unloved. When I was a young man, I lived in Singapore two years, and I remember Singapore is a multinational city, about 10%, 9% of Singapore is South Asian from this country of India. And I love Indian food. And so one day I was in the Indian part of Singapore and I was going to eat and I looked up and across the street I saw a beggar who was shabbily dressed with, you know, unkept and he was begging and he walked up to a very attractive young man and young woman and he was begging them and he hit them with his hand. And the man pulled back and hit him in the face and knocked him to the ground and then kicked him and stepped over him. And went on, and I thought, what is going on? Well, I went back and with a missionary couple I was living with, and I told him what happened. He said, well, this is probably what happened. He said, in the Hindu culture, an untouchable can never touch an upper caste Hindu. Because to touch an upper caste Hindu means to make them unclean. So that was a response that many people would affirm in their culture. You hit him. You push him aside. That's what this woman was experiencing outside the pale. I was reading this week in the Wall Street Journal, an article about solitary confinement and prison gangs in our, in our penal system. We have now 213,000 men who were, members, who were members of gangs in the prison. The, the gang warfare has exploded the population prison in prison in the U.S. And this article says that Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the former head of Mexico's drug cartel, will likely spend the rest of his life in a super maximum security prison. He will be among the 60,000 or more than 4% of all inmates in the U.S. and federal prisons living in solitary confinement, physically and socially isolated for 23 hours a day in a cell smaller than a parking space. There are good reasons, the article says, to support prison reform, but solitary confinement remains necessary to counter the threat of gangs because this man has a price on his head. Prison officials endorse a practice as one of the few effective ways of stopping violence and keeping prisons safe. And I thought about, he's there 24 hour, 23 hours a day, one day, uh, one hour a day he gets outside where he can walk around a yard probably with an attendant because somebody's, they're, 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 there's, there's a price on his head. I would die, die, 
No contact. No human. See, we were made for relationship. God is a relational God. He's Trinitarian. Throughout all of eternity, I would die a thousand deaths. And yet this is exactly the way the woman has lived for 12 years. Basically solitary confinement. And, and, and yet, she has this chronic issue of 12 years. She spent all that she has on physicians, and it's just gotten worse. Let me just, as a side road, thank you, medical community, for being wonderful in what you do. I mean, in this day, there's there no medical community to speak of. In fact, one of the remedies for this was to put a quail egg in a linen napkin and carry it in your, in your pocket. There's nothing. There's nothing. So she'd been doing this, and, and, and this, is, this was a, a costly faith. I, I can't, I love this woman. I love this woman. The, the bravery. If you, have you ever been in a throng of people? I've, I've been in major cities, especially in Asia, where, where you go down the street, there are throngs of people pressing around you. I mean, they're not obtrusive, but you're just packed like this, and everywhere you go, and you think, man, if, if you're a professional pickpocket, this is the place to be right now. And so you make sure that everything's zipped up and ready to go. But you're just pushed and you're prodded and you're pushed and you're prodded and you're pushed and you're prodded. And this is what happens. The Bible says twice here in Mark, there was a great crowd. In fact, it says one place, it was a throng of people pushing, 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 pushing. And here comes this woman. And, and if anybody recognized her and saw that she was a woman who had this blood disease, they would have pulled back in horror and disgust. And she's pushing her way through the crowd just so she can lean forward and touch the hem of the garment of the teacher. It's a costly faith. It's a faith that would lead to further disenfranchisement. But she was, des she was desperate. She was desperate. Now we come to the part of the, of the sermon. Let me tell you, people that teach and preach can tell you the, the, the difficult part of, of preaching and teaching is making good application. Whenever we study the Bible, we, we can either go, that's nice, and close it and walk away, or we can say, wow, what does that say to me? We should say, whenever somebody preaches or teaches, we should hold up a sign that says, so what? Now we're going to do the so what part. I was reading a book on Baptist history this week just for fun, and I've, I've never heard this. There's a guy named Isaac Backus who died in like 1820. He was raised in Connecticut. He was a godly Baptist preacher, but as a young man, he had a vital interest in the things of Christ. And so the elders of the church, there, there was a position in churches in colonial America. I've never read this before, where the elders were set apart certain people that were kind of extroverted and pretty bold, and they would call them exhorters exhorters. And the job of an exhorter was, was to go to people after the sermon and say to them, okay, what are you going to do about the pastor's sermon? How are you going to change? I mean, you're, you're a mother of three children. How is the sermon going to impact the way you love your kids? Or, or how is the sermon going to impact the way you treat people in your business? I mean, th that would be a pretty wild thing to do to walk down the hall and say, hey, the elders have told me I'm an exhorter. I've got to ask you a question. What are you going to do about the woman with the blood flow when you think about your life? And yet, that's exactly what we should be doing to each other. What does the Scripture say about this situation? That we are to be exhorters. We're saying a book as a staff called The Vine Project, and this is what it says. And it's really it's been a good study. It says this, that everything, you've got to be a speed reader. You ready? There you go. 
Everything we do as God's gathered people should be an exercise in the transformative learning of Christ. Everything we do. We should ask ourselves, how does this push me deeper into the reality of the cross, deeper into the light, the transformative learning that we have about Christ? So I'm going to give you a few statements and then one closing. Number one, strong, vital, rich faith is always a desperate faith. Think about it. Strong, vital, Rich, deep faith is always a desperate faith. There's some, the little word in the Hebrew that says, that is translated wait, really means to look to with expectation um, and really to pursue. Listen to Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait, wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait. A well-known passage, Isaiah 40, says this, Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait. It means to look to the Lord with expectation and hope. As you wait, I think of Psalm 17 that says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge, synonym for wait, who seek refuge from their adversaries as at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Wait. So I, I say that, 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 that strong, vital, rich faith is a desperate faith. And listen to me. We live in a, a, a self-congratulatory, puffed-up, I'm-the-center-of-the-universe age. And if you drink from that Kool-Aid stand, you will never see Christ. Until you and I realize, you realize that you are one dumb decision away from blowing it, you'll never go hard for Christ. Until you read the Bible and say, there's no way I can do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll never go hard for Christ. One thing that keeps me somewhat humble, I hope, is to realize there are men who are much finer than I who in their latter years fell into sexual sin or doctrinal sin. It happens all the time. And, and so, to me, a rich faith, a deep faith, a vibrant faith is one that says, wait. I tell our men this man to man. When you have, not if you have, but when you have marital discord, and you will have marital discord, when your children break your heart, and they will break your heart, when your parents are harsh with you, and you will be harsh with your kids. When you have a relationship that has gone upside down, and it happens. I think we should get on our face before God and say, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for showing me that apart from your grace, I can't do this. Thank you for showing me that you hold all things together. 
Thank you for showing me that you're the vine. I'm just a little branch that's been grafted in by the cross, and I can't do this without you. There's a blessedness and brokenness. Thank you for showing me 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Those who think they're strong, be very careful. You're about to fall flat in your face. The present Southeastern Baptist Seminary is where some of our students go to seminary is Danny Aiken. Danny's a delightful person. Other than the fact he's a huge Georgia football fan. Other than that, he's delightful. And Danny um, has written a book on marriage, and, he, and his wife was raised in an orphanage, and they have four boys, and he loves his family. But he has set apart on his calendar, I think, eight weekends a, a year where he will go to church and speak on the family or lead a marriage retreat because he thinks it's so incredibly important. And he wrote an article recently that said he'll lead a marriage retreat and come home, and three or four weeks later, his wife looked at him and said, it's time for you to go lead another marriage retreat. You've forgotten what you've been teaching. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? We have a wonderful ministry here called Reengage for marriage building up and that every couple should take, whether you've been married for two months or 50 years. It's 16 to 20 weeks, and it's just a good course on the foundational reality of Jesus in your marriage and the authority of the Bible in your marriage. And, and we have some great couples involved in leading this ministry, but I think they would tell you that one reason is such a blessing is because every week they have to prepare and they have to keep up with what they're teaching other people to do. There's some couples in this church, one over here and one over there. They've been leading what we call a pre-marriage class in our church for 30 years. Thank you. And they, they take two or three couples and they'll, they'll mentor them for eight to 12 weeks and they'll go through the same, I think the same material for 30 years. It's probably old and yellow with, with, with time now. And, and yet they've said to me several times, thank you for asking us to do this because it's made us really keep our marriage fresh because we have to think about these issues all the time. That's true. That we, we need to be people who continually go back to the well and the power of Jesus to be the people God has called us to be in every area of life. Desperate faith is what we're about. Strong, vital, rich faith is a desperate faith. Are you desperate? Are you desperate? Now, number two, these people were after a blessing. The Lord Christ was after a personal encounter that gives a blessing. The man wanted his daughter to be healed. The woman wanted to be healed of her blood flow. But Jesus, so Jesus calls her out publicly. Jesus goes to this man's house and takes the little girl by the hand and touches her. Now, why did Jesus call this woman out publicly? Why didn't he say, yeah, yeah, this is Power has gone off, out for me. When you come to Christ in repentance and faith and, and tenderness, he responds. He says, no, he wanted, he wanted to, to, uh, to love her and to tell her that she's healed and he cared for her. There's a guy named Martin Buber who died in 1965, I think, and he had this famous concept in a book called the, the, the I-It versus the I-Thou relationship. An I-It relationship is impersonal. It's the way you relate to your computer or your car or the property where you live, your house. An I-thou relationship is between a personal being and another personal being. And Buber said the, 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 the really sad thing is that the vast majority of people have I-it relationships with family and friends. It's not personal. And Jesus always calls us to an I-thou relationship. He wanted this woman to be blessed. 
He wanted to touch this little girl. And he uses these tender terms. He looks, he looks at the woman and he says, he says, daughter. It's a term of endearment. He looks at the little girl and he says, he says, Talitha Kuma, which means dear little girl. The Christ was a relationship. Thirdly, there's an instinctive knowledge. These people had an instinctive knowledge with very little knowledge of who Christ was. Very little knowledge. An instinctive knowledge that there's healing and hope when you encounter Christ. They had no idea he was eternal God who made the heavens and the earth. They had no idea that he was indeed the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. They knew him to be a great teacher who had powers. That's it. And yet, they instinctively knew to get in his presence was to bring healing. And I say to us who have this knowledge about Jesus, we have the scripture, we have the confessions, we have the knowledge. Do you understand there is healing and hope in the presence of Jesus? Do you understand that with our knowledge that there's healing in your lives, in your family? That's what I say to you as husband and wife. Just stop and pray together for two minutes occasionally, every day. Just ask God by his Holy Spirit to bless your marriage to break down your stubbornness, to give you a repentant heart. Or I say to you, as, as a family, just get together and, and read, read a part of the Bible and just pray together. And if you have small kids, it's going to be quick. If you have older kids, it's going to be quick, but still do it. Because you, you ask for the wind of the Holy Spirit to fill the cells of your life. There is healing in the presence of Jesus. The most important thing I can do in my life for my wife, for my kids, for my friends, for you guys, it's to get in the presence of Jesus. Fourthly, faith is only as strong as the object of its desires. Now, these people were desperate. But don't misunderstand, don't misunderstand the text. The, the, the desperation was not the key element of this whole narrative. The, the, the key element of this narrative is the object of their faith, desperation, who is Jesus. It, it is not the height of your emotions is the object of your desire. And in World War II, Japan, uh, shortly after really Pearl Harbor, really right after the Battle of Midway, the Japanese leaders understood that they were defeated. They realized they couldn't keep up with the armaments of the United States. And so as the war wound down, the Japanese Air Force was decimated and the technology of the U.S. surpassed the technology of Japan. And so in a last-ditch effort to win the war, the Japanese military instituted something called the, the kamikaze pilot. And the kamikaze pilot was a pilot in the Japanese Air Force that would take his airplane and use it as a weapon against the U.S. warships. And they would fly into the ships, killing themselves and trying to kill other people, trying to sink the ship. And 3,800 young men would put on the banner of the rising sun and get in their airplane and fly into U.S. warships, 3,800. And, and they did it with, with great enthusiasm. They did it really with a sense of bravado and even giddy laughter because they thought that, that they were serving a god named Hirohito. It's amazing. Five, three, 120 pounds. Hirohito. 
And that if they did this, that they would come back in the reincarnation in a more exalted state because they had lived for the glory of their God. They were enthusiastic, wildly enthusiastic. But the object of their faith was not valid. D.A. Carson, a great New Testament scholar, wrote in his Gospel of John that he was in Australia preaching and he turned on the radio while he was there. And this Canadian New Testament scholar said that there was an interview on the radio with an Anglican bishop and it was Easter week. And he said the radio personnel said to this bishop, he said, sir, if, if, just a wild story, he said, if, they discovered this week a body buried in a Judean hillside. And they rolled back the stone. And they were able to determine with DNA evidence. He says, I know this is not possible. But they were able to determine through DNA evidence that this body was that of Jesus of Nazareth. Would it shake your faith? And the Anglican bishop said this. By the way, this is horrible theology, so don't say amen, okay? He said, it would not shake my faith because Jesus has risen in my heart. Well, balderdash. Um, there is a hymn that some of you sang years ago. I did too. And we were singing the great gusto, you ask me, how I know he lives, what's the answer? He lives within my heart. Now, there, there's a sense that there's some truth to that. I have union with Christ. Don't misunderstand me. But, but right, I don't feel good today. My emotions are deplete. My energy is deplete. Uh, in fact, you kind of look good today, so I know I'm not seeing things well. Um, there are times when my heart is just dead. There are times when I am uncaring. There are times when I should be weeping, but my eyes are dry. And does that mean that Jesus isn't Lord in heaven praying for his church? No. You ask me how I know he lives? I'm glad to have union with Christ. Don't misunderstand me. But the ultimate apologetic is not that he lives in my heart. The ultimate apologetic is he rose victorious over death. That he was seen by 500 brothers and, and, and then he ascended to heaven and he prays for the church and one day he's going to come again. He is God incarnate and he lives because he's God. Now you may not feel it sometimes. That's beside the point. The ultimate apologetic and the ultimate desperation of faith is the object of my desire. There's a man who was uh, one of the leaders of the post-modernity movement in France, and this is what he said about defining post-modernity. I thought this was very interesting. He said, uh, to, uh, simplifying to the extreme post-modernity, I define post-modernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. A meta-narrative is, is, is a big story that gives truth to everything else. And he says, there is no meta-narrative out there. It's all just individual statements about individual beliefs, and there's nothing to really live for or die for. We're all doing our own thing, and we reject that completely. The meta-narrative we love is Jesus Christ, eternal God, lived died, rose again, and is coming again. That is the meta-narrative. The desperation of our faith is not valid because we're desperate. The desperation of our faith is valid because the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we preach the gospel. We love people. And as I look at this story, 
It's an amazing story. Jesus loved people. He entered into their lives. I am amazed. When I read the Gospels, it seems that Christ is never in a hurry. He stops in the midst of these hundreds of people that are pushing and prodding and calling. And, and he says, who touched me? And he goes to the home of this man who's a ruler of the synagogue. And he takes this little girl by the hand and he says, little girl, arise. He loved people. I say to you, we are to enter into the lives. We have this wonderful testimony on the video about, about a young woman who pursued one of our campus outreach workers and loved her. I mean, that being multiplied all across our church, especially as the Easter season approaches, that we would, with hospitality and love, enter into the lives of people and just love people and pray that we would be able to stop and share Christ with them. Just love people because the ultimate wholeness is in Christ. Not just physical healing here, but in eternity to come. I was reading a book about this guy recently, Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle was the French hero of really World War I and II, but in World War II, he was the leader of the free French movement that fought against the Nazi occupational forces and gave fiery radio broadcasts. He was 6'5". And after the war, most Frenchmen had never seen him. They just heard his voice, and he walked down the Champs Elysees with 6'5", you know, and they said it was an incredible moment. He became the president of France, and he was quite a character. As I read his story, I was very moved by his love of his children. He had three children. The youngest was a Down syndrome little girl whom he dearly loved. In fact, his friends and people that lived next to him said it was a daunting reality to see the president of France or the hero of World War II run home, run to his house, embrace his wife, and search out diligently for his little girl. Mary was her name. And he would hold her hand and laugh with her and walk with her in the street or in their garden. And uh, just loved her tenderly. And she died at the age of 20 of pneumonia. And de Gaulle, in fact, held her in his arms as she died. And they buried her, and the people there standing next to him said when they were leaving the cemetery, de Gaulle embraced his wife and says, now she is whole. I said, amen. The hope of the gospel. Hope of the gospel is this Christ loves us eternally and gives us hope that extends beyond death. And that's why we preach it. That's why we live it. So let's learn afresh from this narrative. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the simple and profound story. Thank you that you make unclean people clean like this woman. Thank you that you love little girls who are sick, children. Thank you that you, in the midst of a throng of people pushing and prodding and grasping, sensed when someone came to you with Deep, deep need. Thank you that our faith is always a desperate faith if it's rich and real. Thank you, Lord, that no matter how credentialed we are, no matter how we look on the outside, no matter how we may be applauded by our culture, that we really are people who are in desperate need to know more of the reality of Jesus. So, Lord, bless us at our point of need. Bless us. Uh, show us the greatness of Christ and show us so that we can be men and women 
who love and care for people who are outsiders who do not know you in order to introduce them to the reality of Christ. So thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you for the bold faith of a woman who pushed through the people. Thank you for a father who was broken over the need of his children. And Lord, may we be broken as we walk before you because you are the God of all truth. In Jesus' name, amen.